Our teaching today comes from Ecclesiastes. We'll begin with verse 10 of chapter 6 and read through verse 10 of chapter 7. Here now, this is God's Word. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is God's word given for us. Jacob wrestled with God. It's kind of an interesting image, isn't it, to get in your picture? Jacob wrestling with God. I have a picture of Jacob being a large man, able to wrestle and conquer most people around him, powerful. Artists have tried to depict this wrestling with God. It's tough to do it because how big is God? What is God's power? How could Jacob even begin to get his arms around God so that it would seem like he would have an advantage? at least for a small time. How do we wrestle with God? Do you wrestle with God? It's an image that is almost beyond imagination, and yet it's one that's very honest and familiar to the human experience, that we wrestle with God when we we don't experience Him the way we expect Him to act, when we don't understand His ways, when when we don't want to follow His instructions. But maybe we don't want to acknowledge his existence. We try to wrap our arms around him and beat him down and submit him. But at the same time, like Jacob knew, we know that we can't beat God in a wrestling match or any other kind of match. This is a question at the heart of the passage today. Ecclesiastes 6, look with me at verse 12. The question is simply this. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? 
The answer is presented in a number of ironic parables, ironic proverbs that we read through from chapter 7, verse 1 through to verse 10. We'll talk about some of those proverbs today. Unexpected in many ways, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go into the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. We come back to this question, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? That's how the passage started, too, that we read today. Verse 10, whatever has come has already been named, named by God. God has set in history a time and place for everything. It's known what man is. In other words, God knows that and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. In other words, we can try to wrestle like Jacob does, but we come out of that wrestling match. We come out either completely destroyed or like Jacob with a reminder, Jacob's hip was forever not the same. He probably walked with a limp from that point on. God touched his hip and gave him a reminder of his power. And yet also at the same time, that hip out of joint, messed up somehow, was both a reminder of God's power and his grace. In one touch. One touch was a reminder of God's power and his grace. Who can dispute with one stronger than he who knows the mind of God is what Solomon is saying over and over again. If you've been tracking with us, with us, looking at the study of Ecclesiastes, you're starting to see some of the keys to unlocking and understanding Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to understand, and unlike most of the Bible, I will make this point oftentimes that in most of the Bible, our English translations are sufficient that we can understand the vast majority of what's being said. And I oftentimes don't go back to the original languages because I want you to have a right confidence in the English translations that you read from. It's really important that you understand that what you are reading is not just a portion of what God has given us. It is essentially the fullness. But Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is a little bit different because for the sake of brevity, for the sake of not expanding out the text longer than what it really is, we have to pick some translations that don't always give us the fullness of the meaning. For example, first, vanity. Vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity. This too is a vanity. Over and over, the author goes back to this theme and we think maybe vanity of looking in a mirror and gazing upon oneself. That is vanity. A vanity in loving the things of the world and caring too much about what we wear, what we look like. That is another form of vanity. But vanity in this context has a broader meaning in it. It is developed throughout. It is, is a concept of a, a mist, a vapor, something that's temporal as contrasted with that, that which is eternal. Vanities are things that don't last. Things that aren't substantial. 
The more words, verse 11 says, the more vanity. The more we try to understand some things that we can't understand, that God hasn't revealed to us, the more we get caught up into thinking only in temporal terms, short-term thinking, as opposed to eternal terms, long-term thinking. Investing for the short-term or the long-term. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to focus our gaze on the long-term, the eternal We have to understand that vanity is the temporal, the mist, the vapor, as contrasted with the eternal. The second thing that I hope we're seeing throughout this book of Ecclesiastes is the concept of God's gifts to humanity. The generosity of God. Again, at times we come to these passages and we think that doesn't seem like a very good gift God's given Some of the things are filled with toil and trouble. Some of the things aren't as fulfilling as we want them to be. Some of the time we come to Ecclesiastes as a a theodicy, an explanation of evil. That's what a theodicy is, is a way to explain evil by, uh, in terms of God, as a theodicy. I came to Ecclesiastes in part because I wanted to explore the theme of theodicy, an explanation of evil, but I've been stifled in my understanding of that because Ecclesiastes is not a theodicy. Ecclesiastes is not trying to explain why evil exists. Ecclesiastes wants us to set our gaze on those things eternal and our thanksgiving, our joy on the good things that God has given us. Key question asked at the beginning of Ecclesiastes and again we looked at it last week is what does it profit a man? Where is true gain? Where can we invest that we'll see a return on our investment that's substantial? Last week we saw two great evils. Men who had, in both cases, great wealth and riches, and yet in the one case, the man could not hold on to the wealth and riches, and in the other case, he couldn't find joy in them. Even when he had them, he couldn't experience joy, and that is God's good gift to us, is joy in the everyday experiences of life even when we can't see behind the veil to understand everything that God is doing. And that's the third key that I want you to see is that God has given us these things so that we can enjoy his good gifts. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is attuned to the things that eat away and steal our joy. One of the things he says is envy. Envy is at the heart of it. Wanting those things that God has given to somebody else. And what's at the heart of joy but to appreciate the things God has given us? 
and not worry so much about the things God has given somebody else. I once heard the gospel presented this way. That there is a contentment and a satisfaction when you can look at another person and you're tempted to be envious of what that person has and you can say or hear God's voice saying to you, that's not your story. I've given you a story. You have this story. We just talked about this this morning in our Sunday school class, stories and understanding the significance of each of our stories and each of us have different stories and oftentimes what stands in the way of relationship is that we don't have time or don't take the time to listen to other people's story and on top of that we add this problem that we envy their story we want their story and we can't we can't appreciate our story the good gifts God has given us not just material gifts but the experiences in life good and bad. Because if God is sovereign and if God has a plan for all this, is what Ecclesiastes writer is saying, then God has a purpose for all those things that you've experienced. Now that's not to say God approves of all the decisions that you make. We make a lot of decisions that God says, I wish you wouldn't have made that. But... But the whole story of Genesis is about people God chose to work through and know and let them know him, making bad decisions and then God turning those decisions around to use for his good purposes. Not just to teach them a lesson, don't do that again, but to form those people into who they are. And to communicate to them that their their worth, their identity, the, the love that God has for them is not founded on their performance. It's founded on God's choosing them. It's founded on God's faithful love, his sure and steadfast love. The word throughout the Hebrew Bible that's unpacked in the New Testament further is chesed. And in the Old Testament, you'll see it translated oftentimes as God's steadfast love. In the New Testament, the concept is revealed more fully that it is full of grace. It's a gracious love that God extends to human beings. That in their story, God comes to love them. But it's not an easy love to love with. It's a love that requires a lot of work and it's a love that's required of Jesus and his death, his sacrificial death to atone for our sins, to make us right with God, to reconcile relationship. It comes at a great cost when we love other people who are difficult to love, who keep doing things that break the relationship. That kind of love is a difficult love. It requires a lot of us paying costs that other people owe to us. But we can do it when we understand that the story God has given us is not just a story of I'm pretty good 
so I can love other people who aren't so good. The story that God has given each of us, that's common to all of us who have known God, is that God has loved me when I'm not good. So that I can love other people when they're not good. The writer of Ecclesiastes, we've said, most likely Solomon, refers to himself as the preacher, the teacher, sometimes seems to take us on a bit of a random wandering course from subject to subject. But I'm appreciating that while Ecclesiastes is not a theodicy, Ecclesiastes does have a flow and a consistency. Have you noticed last week we were looking at these two evils And then the solution was that we would find joy in the good things God has given us. To eat and drink and enjoy those things. To enjoy the ones that God has given us to love. And then this week we turn around and it seems like he's saying the opposite. A a good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Well, which one is it? Should I eat and drink and enjoy life or should I spend life in the house of mourning? And you go back to chapter 3 and you find the answer to this. And the answer is that there's a time and a place for everything that God has appointed under the sun. The answer to life isn't one or the other. The answer to life is knowing when to do each thing in its proper time. I remember a song from the 90s by a popular rock band, and one of the lines in this song said, I'm the type of guy who likes to laugh at a funeral. You don't know what I mean, you soon will. And that is the opposite of biblical wisdom. Maybe he doesn't actually explain what he means by that. Sometimes we do laugh at a funeral because we have to have even those times of sorrow and feasting in the midst of things. We remember people and we enjoy the memory of those that person. And so it's not a inappropriate to laugh at a funeral but even there we need to know the proper time and place I was reminded of this just a week and a half ago when I went to a debrief after that uh, shooting in Vegas with the San Diego Police Department where I serve as a chaplain and I'm used to working with the police officers and police officers kind of have a detachment and so you can laugh about things and greet one another with a smile before you enter a room even for a serious conversation but in this case it was unique where they brought some of their loved ones who were attending that concert with them and I greeted one of the officers who I know who was there with his girlfriend and in greeting the officer before we even entered the room I I said something to make a joke or to say something funny, and we laughed a bit. And I'm not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure that the girlfriend was offended. Because for her, it was a time of mourning. It was a time of sadness. And she made a comment later in that whole interaction to that effect, like, why do the people around me not understand the the gravity of the situation, the severity of it? the emotions that I'm feeling. 
She didn't say that directly to me, but it was enough that I picked up on it, that I didn't understand the time for weeping. The preacher, writer of Ecclesiastes, after chapter 3, is taking us on this tour of human life experiences. He's saying, when you are in the middle of life, enjoy the things God has given you. Laugh and be merry. When death draws near, understand that that is meant to bring weeping. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus had died, even with the knowledge that Lazarus was going to be raised in just a few minutes by his own power, Jesus' own power. And yet Jesus understood that the time and place was for weeping when death draws near. When we experience death. These are all temporal things though. We weep now because we won't weep eternally. We see the conflict now because death is a temporal thing that is intruded into what was meant to be eternal life. We ask God questions and wrestle with him when death draws near, when things happen that we can't explain, when we experience cancer in our own body or in the body of somebody we love. Because it is an intrusion into what God made to be eternal. God has put eternity in our hearts. He calls us to value the things that he values. Human life. The dignity of human beings. The necessity of relationship with God. He opens this passage, chapter 7, verse 1, saying, A good name is better than precious ointment. You have a a bit of a wordplay here. Again, it's tough to find in the English translation. One of my Hebrew professors in seminary would always greet the class with the phrase, Boker Tov. And he expected all of us to respond with the phrase, Boker Tov, Jay. He let us call him by his first name. Not all of them did that, but he did. Boker Tov, Jay. Good morning is what it means. Good morning. A Tov name is better than Tov ointment. Same word, translated differently because good ointment doesn't quite communicate the right thing and precious name doesn't quite communicate the right thing. It's a play on words. A precious, good, valuable name is better than precious ointment. And ointment for us doesn't have the same connotation. But ointment in the ancient world that was valuable, you remember that story of Jesus and the woman coming in and breaking a jar of precious ointment that was worth over a year's wage. For a common laborer. How many of you have spent 
tens of thousands of dollars on precious ointment. But that's the comparison that the writer is saying. A good name. Well respected. This is one of the qualifications for elder that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy is that you have a good name. Not just among believers, but among all people or among the world in general. That's not to say everybody likes you. But it is to say that they can't point a finger and say this is a scoundrel of a person. This is a person who says one thing and does another thing. This was characteristic of the hypocrites in Jesus' day. Who were the hypocrites but the religious leaders, many of them? That's not to say that our leaders are always perfect, but our leaders confess, are honest, aren't trying to be the hero of the day. Solomon, if he's writing this toward the end of his life, knows that his name has been soiled. He was one of the hypocrites. And yet it seems that he came back around and he recognized some of the evil of his way. The consequences still played out, but he recognized it. He's saying that good name is developed over time. And look, the day of death, Later, he says, the end of something is better than the day of birth, the beginning of something. It's a weird saying. It's ironic. Why would he say something like that except to focus our attention on that eternity? Because what do we focus on with the beginning of something? We focus on the hope. The opportunity. Most of the time, things start off better in our mind than they end up. We're at the beginning of semester for some of you for classes. Aren't your plans for the class far greater at the beginning of the class than they are at the end? When you're just scrambling to get the paper in? You're cramming for the test? But if we focus on the end of something, we invest in the long term And we're forced to come back to the reality, the question, the face-to-face reality that death is going to come. The end of these things is going to come. And then what? And then what? Well, some people say nothing. That's the end. Some people point out, well, my legacy, those people I've invested in, perhaps my children or other people that I've taught, my students, my company. That's a closer answer because it realizes that life is more than just you. The first one is the narcissist. The second one is at least uh, um, a generous person to some degree, recognizing that there's something bigger than them. But the third one is the one who recognizes that God is over all things And that death is not the end of things. As John Owen said, he was the president of Cambridge, also a pastor, an amazing scholar, titled one of his books, The Death of Death in the Life of Christ. That in Christ, the story of redemption is that death is not the end of things. And so we can invest in the eternal. And now, 
don't hear me wrong here because what happens when we have that realization? Well, some people, some people get that understanding and they revert back to the first person, the narcissism. And their life turns inward and it's all about me and God. This was the Pharisees. This is a selfish person. It's all about me and God. This isn't the end of things. So I'm going to invest everything in me and God and they never get outside of themselves. They can never give of themselves to another person. But Jesus critiques that person saying, look at the person who got this talent to invest. Talent, measure of money. Talent to invest. And he just buries it in the ground. But the eternal investment, the one who sees that the day of death is better than the day of birth, is the one who realizes that he's been given these days of this vain life in order to both know God and to love others. To know God, vertical, to love others. Sorrow is better than laughter. One counselor, therapist, said it this way, perhaps a bit of hyperbole here, but listen to this. He said, sorrow is the only productive emotion. Sorrow is the only productive emotion. John Cox, speaker. For by sadness, the heart is made glad. By sadness, the heart is made glad. I'm sure if you're like me, you hear those phrases and you think of all the exceptions. Sure, there are good things in other emotions. But does any other emotion shape our life, our outlook, redirect our priorities, make us love others and invest and love the time, make use of the time like death does? Dead Poets Society, right? I referenced it last week. Professor Keating takes the students out in the foyer and he has them look at the pictures of classes that had gone before them, young men, and he tells them, all of these men are food for worms, lads. Food for worms. Seize the day, carpe diem, make good use of the time, sorrow, death, redirects our life. It is the only productive emotion. So why do we hate it so much? Why do we try to calm our pain by feasting and drinking? Again, I'm going to take us to something that's more in the Hebrew text than it is in the, in the translation. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. This word for sorrow in the Hebrew is translated in other places as vexation. Back in chapter 5, verse 17, again, this was that first evil, a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. That was the evil we talked about, right? Have riches, can't hold on to them. And he assesses this at the end of that, verse 17, by saying, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, right? Can't enjoy eating 
in much vexation and sickness and anger. Same word. Vexation is better than laughter. Vexation is better than laughter. That's interesting. Go way back to chapter 1, verse 18, and you have the author introducing this whole treatise and saying, in much wisdom, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. These concepts here that you see in verse 18, the concept of parallelism, it's all through the Psalms where we can understand two words that relate to one another, synonyms, but not entirely congruent synonyms uh, that they, 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 they are related. And so we don't think necessarily of vexation and sorrow being related. Vexation is frustration, anger, provocation. Sorrow is sadness, crying, weeping, Mourning, But don't you see that sadness, when we understand some of the things of God, when we have something of the wisdom of God, sadness should be a vexation to us. <clears throat> it is a confounding thing that God would put eternity in our hearts and yet cut life short. It is a vexating thing. To experience the realities and the conundrums of life, the ironic nature of life. Vexation and understanding that, seeing the wisdom there is better than laughter because laughter is oftentimes just experienced by fools who don't want to think much about life, who can't sit down and experience silence remember that theme silence silence the writer of Ecclesiastes invites us into silence have you ever tried to sit down for even 30 seconds of silence especially when you're in the presence of other people and you start to feel uncomfortable much less a half an hour of silence that's what you see happening in Revelation there's a half an hour of silence Do you ever fast from words? Words increase. Words increase. When vanity increases. Oftentimes God just calls us to sit in a place of silence, to hear his voice, to recognize that the words of many people are like the crackling of thorns under a pot. And this evidently in Hebrew, and I couldn't read it quite this way, this phrase in Hebrew, verse 6, for as a crackling of thorns under a pot actually sounds a little bit like a fire popping with a lot of s and guttural k. The thorns that you throw in and they flame up really quickly and you think, man, this is a great fire, and then they're gone. The laughter of fools. It's temporal. It has no substance. 
we're called into the house of mourning to understand the things of God. To recognize what's foolishness. To understand that the things of God take patience, verse 8. Patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Same word, vexation. Translated here, anger. Vexation lodges in the bosom of fools. Tough to understand. Helpful to see the range of the word, but also how that word is tied together and it's not just separated things, sorrow and anger. There is a place for righteous anger. But quick anger is oftentimes the same thing as the crackling song of fools under the pot. It lasts for a time. What does the song of fools tell us? tells us what we want to hear. Doesn't it? It tells us what we want to hear. That's how you uh, uh, better better is the rebuke from someone who is wise, someone trusted than the praise of fools. Better is that which comes in time, in love, is experienced and put deep in the body and the heart. The heart, by the way, here is not just where we feel. We tend to associate the heart with emotions. For the ancient world, the heart was the center of the person, the intellect and emotion, the brain and the heart in our sense. Better is the heart that is shaped by those things that doesn't immediately go to anger, immediately go to joy and laughing. But it can experience those things in the right place in the right time. It understands there's a season and a place and time for everything. It doesn't, verse 10, say, why can't today just be like yesterday? I was happy then and now I'm sad. I had all kinds of hope then, but now reality is set in. And he says this very compassionately. That does not come from wisdom. That does not come from the understanding that God has set a time and place for everything. That assumes that we know best and that we can win the wrestling match with God. Who can dispute with one stronger than he? Are you stronger than Jacob? Are you stronger than God? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And the answer is Jesus. It's God himself who knows you and who loves you, who reveals himself to you, who guides you and actively lives in you and giving you the Holy Spirit and knows everything that vexes you Everything that gives you joy, everything that he's given you to enjoy, and everything that you need in life. That's not vanity. It's not a mist. 
It's eternal. It's lasting. It's substantive. It's like an oak log that burns for hours in the fire. This is the good news that God has given us. Wisdom of Ecclesiastes that God calls us to follow. Let's let's pray. O Lord, would you set our heart on things above and not on things below where moth and rust destroy. Will you help us to store up treasures in heaven? Will you help us to reorient our life and invest the things that you have given us, the good gifts, to laugh when it's time to laugh and to cry when it's time to cry? To know you and experience your deep and abiding and steadfast love that has said that is filled with grace, demonstrated in Jesus. Will you move us into life with a courage and a confidence that our identity, our identity is secure. The story you have given us is meaningful because you have written the story. Help us, help us, Lord, to live in that abiding love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.